Welcome to the Pathway Podcast. This episode is the first part of our church series. Executive Pastor Mitchell Neldon challenges us to know and love people like God knows and loves us. Stay tuned after the sermon for this week's next steps. Uh, we are starting a new series today, and the series is called uh, Church. And just to start off, I love this church. I've been a part of Pathway since year two of its existence, and that was a, a unique experience for me walking into a church that was that young. I grew up in churches uh, before I came to college that were dozens of years old, right, if not hundreds of years old, where they've been around for a century or so. And you probably grew up in similar experiences where the church you were part of growing up maybe was that old. You may have grown up in a a church plan situation similar to what this is. But no matter what your experience is, we want you to know that that as a church, uh, we love you and we want to connect with you. We want what's best for you. We care about your relationship with God more than we care about anything else. And we're thankful that you're here. But when we say the word church, we can kind of all have different ideas on what exactly that is. You know what I mean? Where you say church and some people think of it as the building. You say church and some people think of it as a snooty group of people that are a bunch of hypocrites and everything in between, you know? Well, to all get on the same page, and that's important for us for this series since we're going to be talking about church for the next four weeks. We, let's all get on the same page and define church. And it's not a simple definition. The word church came to us, how we use it, through a process, right? The word church actually is, comes from a German word, and it means belonging to the Lord. And then so that begs the question, well, if church means belonging to the Lord, what belongs to the Lord? The building? I know, I remember running around uh, the church, I remember one of my older cousins who had kids that were the same age as me, uh, we were running around and she said, she was kind of strict, I won't tell you who she is in case you know her, but she was kind of strict and she said, quit running around in God's house. And I remember thinking like, God's house? I haven't seen God here anywhere, you know? And so we think like, oh, church, that belongs to God's house. But what we get wrong about that is we can kind of uh, refer to church as a place when really what it, what it means in the New Testament is it means a group of people, an assembly of people. For example, if this building is empty, it's not the church. And so for, for us and my family, I, uh, we try not to say oh, we're going to the church because they, they will make that connection to the building. Because I want my kids to have an accurate definition of what church means. And I hope that you do too. And to help you with that, the word, the Greek word in the New Testament that, that's used for church is ekklesia, which means an assembly, a gathering of people with a common mission, vision, and purpose. So, for example, in a secular meaning, a PTA meeting can be an ekklesia. It can be referred to as a kind of church where people that are gathered together, it can be gathered together with a common mission, vision, and purpose. A pampered chef party could be an ekklesia. Thankfully, I've never been to one of those. Uh, not my cup of tea, but if it is good for you, I've benefited from Pampered Chef, just not gone to a party. An arena of fans. 
Yesterday we had a baseball game, two baseball games in one day. That's crazy that you can play a sport twice in one day. That's, that's not a real sport in my mind. But anyway, um, an arena of fans could be classified as an ecclesia because it's just a, a group assembled together with a common mission and vision and purpose, united behind that, working together to accomplish that common goal. But what's great about the word church is that it does put that phrase in, belonging to the Lord. So because of the great German language, we can take both ecclesia and the word church and we can understand that the church is a gathering of people that belong, those people belong to the Lord and those people belonging to the Lord have a common mission, vision, and purpose. And here at Pathway, if you've been here very long, hopefully you've heard this, our, our purpose for you and for us as a church is to create a community that is equipped to bring Christ to our city. And what we hope to do is that we, we hope that you walk in here, you feel connected, you feel like you can become part of this community. And if you dig deep a little bit, go to small group, have your kids come on Wednesday nights, the Fuse and Pathway kids. If you're a college student, you go to Thrive on Wednesday nights. And you feel equipped with the good news of Jesus. You feel like you can have the tools that, that come with the good news of Jesus in your back pocket so you can use it every day of your life. And hopefully you take those tools with the backing of this community and with the equipping that we hope to give you, and you're ready to accomplish the vision that I believe every Christian has over their life that's given to them by God, which is to bring Christ to the people around them. And as a church, we unite, and hopefully we make a big impact on this city, north of Arkansas, and hopefully the world. And that's what we're going to be talking about, how we can do that, but most importantly, how we can celebrate, not most importantly, but how we can celebrate it. Because we can kind of view things that, that we know that we're supposed to do. And even though they're great things, we can turn them into chores, right? If you've ever planned a birthday party for a kid, it can, or you've ever planned a wedding or something like that, that's meant to be a celebration. But when we have it on our to-do list, it becomes just like taking out the trash. And what I hope is, is that church for you, if you put it on your calendar and you try to make it every Sunday morning, you try to make it to small group, you try to make it on Wednesday nights, we hope that you can come ready to celebrate every single time. For some of you, for the parents to drop their kids off and get in the car without your kids driving away, that's a celebration, right? It's easy to celebrate for the two hours that they're going to be here and you're somewhere else. But what we want you to do is to, to view church as an opportunity for us as believers to gather together and to celebrate what God has done for us through Jesus, to celebrate our common faith, to celebrate the unity that we have through the Holy Spirit every single time, and not just be something that's on our to-do list, but we can celebrate every single time we gather together. But today, what we're going to be talking about is how valuable the church is on the individual level. So week one, we're going to be talking about what church should be and how valuable it should be on the individual level. Just you. And we'll have a challenge for you as an individual, both if you're not a part of this church, if you, if you don't consider yourself part of any church yet, if you're a visitor or you're a guest, even if you're a non-believer, there's going to be a challenge for you. But if you are a part of this church or another church, there's also going to be a challenge for you as well. But we're going to start off with with a instruction from the Apostle Paul to a group of churches in Galatia. If you flip over Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, this is one of my favorite verses. This is actually, this morning is just kind of like a series of my favorite verses. And, uh, but 
chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, you may or may not be familiar with this, but this is a very important instruction from the Apostle Paul to the church of Galatia, to the churches in Galatia. And he says, Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. And be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. Share each other's burdens, and in this way, obey the law of Christ. If you think that you are too important to help someone, it's my favorite part, you are only fooling yourself. You are not that important. The NLT has a way of kind of just not beating around the bush and getting right to it. You see what the, a big aspect of the local church, because we can talk about church in kind of these grand terms, big C church, you know. But what we're going to be talking about for these next four weeks is the very practical side of church, little C church, the local church that you can see and attend. And multiple times a week, you can be a part of a community and get involved in a local church. And that's who Paul is writing to here. And what he's saying, he's saying, here's a valuable aspect of the church that you should be celebrating and leveraging to push you to become more and more like Jesus is that for fellow believers to come alongside you, says, for those of you who are godly, if somebody's caught up in sin, they are giving in to temptation, doing things that Jesus says not to do, what you should do is you should gently and humbly help that person out. Help them get back on the right path. And that's hard to do, right? Because the temptation is for us to think that we don't struggle with those things. The temptation is that we don't don't struggle the way that they do, and our struggle is not as bad as somebody else's. And that's what the church has a reputation of, is that we look down on certain people who are not a part of what we're doing. Well, what we strive to do here, and what we try to work on all the time, and we fail. Of course, we fall short of God's standard, but what we're trying to do is we're trying to overcome and overcome that, that, that hypocrisy that has been labeled to the two Christians in general. And to take people that are struggling with different things and to gently and humbly help them and get them back on the right path. He says to share each other's burdens. We all have burdens. We all should look to other people as more important than ourselves. That's what humility is, is to think that somebody is more important than us, and so therefore we try to serve that person. And the way that Paul is saying that you can serve people within your church is to help them out when they are giving in to temptation, when they are struggling with certain sins. And we all struggle with different things, right? And earlier in this letter, Paul actually gives them a list. And we're not going to read that, but just to give you a few, sexual immorality, lustful pleasures, outbursts of anger, drunkenness, quarreling, sorcery. Never had to deal with that one personally. I've had, I have heard some people have had to deal with that, which that would scare me to death. But he gives a list of these things in chapter 5 of Galatians. And he's saying, hey, here are the things that you don't need to do. But he follows it up with the verses we just read. If someone is struggling with these things, don't condemn them. Don't Put them out of the group of people that, that, that you call your church, but first, you should try to help them. Now, it does come to a certain point, and we won't get into that this week, but it does come to a certain point where the individual is hurting the group, and it's really important for you to make sure that you're not sacrificing for the one 
and, and hurting everybody else. Does that make sense? You need to make sure that there's not one person that's causing such a big problem that it's hurting everybody else, and that person doesn't want help. But what this is saying here is that your first instinct, your first go-to should be to help that person. And hopefully, the person responds well, and they want to get back on the right path, and you can help them become a better Christian, a better follower of Jesus through those efforts. You know, fellow believers, we should come alongside and coach each other up to do the things that Peter, or not Peter, but Paul follows up in the next few verses in chapter 5, which you should know this if you grew up in church. I didn't. I'm ashamed to, to say this, that I did not learn the songs that uh, my kids' ministry directors failed me to, failed to teach me. But love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, right? And it's great to go to church camp, kids' camp, and see these kids sing these songs and to sing these words. These words should permeate the Christian life. When you walk into a church, these, these words should be ever. You should use these words to describe the people in there. There should, be pay, there should be peace and patience and kindness, gentleness, self-control for these people. These are the things that you should be doing in your life. And we should help each other take out those bad things and put in these good things. To take out the sin that destroys our life and to plant into our life the good things that bring life not to just our lives, but to the church and to the people around us in our everyday life. That's the goal. That's what we should be doing as a church. It's a valuable aspect of the church. We should be celebrating this together. But what is implied here, what's implied is that we know each other well enough that we know when we're struggling. What's implied is that the, these churches are intimate enough with each other that they can recognize when somebody's struggling. And on the other side of that, the churches are intimate enough that people, when they're struggling, feel comfortable with opening up to the people around them in the church. You have to live your life within the church in a way that the fruit of your life is evident to the people around you. And you should also live your life in a way where if you're sending the people that are closest to you, the inner circle that, that you have within this church, they should see where you're struggling and they should be able to, to love you enough and recognize it enough, and you should be close to them enough that they come alongside you and help you. You see this not only in Galatians 5 and 6, but in James chapter 5, verse 16. He says, confess your sins one to another, for the prayer of a righteous person availeth much, is what the KJV says. In Romans 12, 15, Paul again writes, and he says, be happy with, with happy people. Rejoice with joyful people, but also mourn with the mourning. What's implicit in these verses is that we know each other well enough as a local church that we know when each other are mourning. We know when we can celebrate with other people because they're celebrating in their personal lives. We are so open with each other that we can come alongside each other. And that's the whole reason we have small groups is because this is a room, about 100 people in it, and it's difficult for us to know exactly what's going on. And this, this is, we're all facing the same direction, right? It's dark. You can't even, we're all wearing masks, you know? Like, it's tough to be intimate. It's tough to have this, this community that Paul is talking about here. So what we do is during the weeks, we break up into small groups. We sit in circles in a well-lit room. We open the Bible. We ask you questions. You, we don't ask you to respond to what I'm saying right now uh, vocally with, with, with discussion, but we ask you to discuss in small groups, right? Because the whole point is, is that for us to do this right, 
for us to be able to confess our sins to one another, for us to be able to share each other's burdens, for us to be happy with people that are happy, for us to mourn with people that are mourning. we got to know those things. we got to put ourselves in situations for us to know that about each other, to know the ups and downs of our lives in real time. And that's a big challenge. The reason that's a big challenge is that there's a crazy temptation for us to put on a facade when we assemble with God's people. There's this big temptation. And not only that, but the church has this reputation we've already talked about where you have to act a certain way, dress a certain way, say certain things, do certain things. And we feel that temptation when we come and gather as God's people. We have that church facade. We have that, uh, I'm, I'm okay, things are doing well. We kind of, the, the, when we're just passing people on the road and they say, hey, how are you doing? You say, fine, how are you? And we can treat the community of church the same way, where it's, we're just passing, we're like ships passing in the night. And we don't have time for the intimacy that Paul is talking about in these verses. We like to put on, put on a facade and act like everything's okay. But I'm telling you right now that that comes from the enemy. That temptation to put on a facade with this group of people here and for you to pretend like everything's okay and you're not struggling with anything, for you to gather with your small group every single week and for you not to feel comfortable enough to share really what's going on in your heart and in your mind, that temptation does not come from God. It comes from our enemy. It comes from Satan. Because if, if Satan can keep us in a position where we just tell our brothers and sisters in the faith, the, God, the, the people that God has placed in your life, for you to not only call brother and sister, but for you to treat them as such and to share each other's burdens and to confess to one another, to come alongside and to help each other with what we're struggling with, to mourn when we're mourning, to be happy when we're happy. If we're just sitting there and saying, everything's okay, I don't have to open up. Giving into that temptation of putting on this facade is a dangerous, dangerous thing. And a lot of people go decades without opening up to the people that they call their church, to their ecclesia. And what happens is, is that the facade that's on the outside begins to decay what's on the inside. And that disconnection with God's people results in a disconnection with God. The disconnection with our brothers and sisters in the faith causes a disconnection with our Heavenly Father. And it's a sad thing to see, to walk into a group of people that call each other brother and sister, that call God their Heavenly Father, and to see that disconnection. And it can happen easily. And I'm not judging any churches because I have been guilty of that myself as individuals, and that's, as an individual, and that's the only way to fix it is for us to address it as individuals of the church. Is for us to remove that facade and to obey the verses that we've read so far and referenced so far. To know each other so well that we can help each other out in that way. For the church to be what it was designed to be, being known, being truly known, is of utmost importance. For years I said utmost, it's utmost in case you didn't know, right? It's a good note to put down for the note takers. Utmost importance. The church should know. I'm not saying that you should get on this stage and, and tell everybody your business. But what I am saying is that there should be a group of people within here that you're closer to than you are really with everybody else and that you feel comfortable enough that they know who you are 
They know who you've been. They know who you want to be. They know what's going on in your life, how you are handling it, where you're struggling, why you're struggling, where you're succeeding, why you're succeeding. There should be a group of people that know those things, that know the depth of your heart as much as humanly possible because that reflects the depth that God knows us. And that's obedience to the instructions that we've been given by Jesus and through the letters. Some of us, so many of us are struggling and living in spiritual incognito. You ever use Google incognito? You know what I'm talking about? Where you, where you can go and it doesn't have your history or anything like that. And so if you're at work, you can go and you can get on Facebook and your, job, and your boss can't see that you went on Facebook. <laughs> That's what we like to do when we come to church. Go into incognito mode. Where we can be somebody else. We can pretend like we're not struggling. We walk in here and, and we can assume a false identity. We can pretend that we're somebody else that doesn't have the same struggles that the real person, the Monday through Saturday person, is experiencing. If you feel that temptation, I'm asking you to resist that, that you change your mind about that, that you repent from that, and you say, you know what, I'm going to do things differently. I'm going to resist the temptation to be spiritually anonymous, to be incognito when I gather with God's God's people, because I know that I need to be known and loved in a similar way that God knows me and loves me. And this is not a new problem. This is not a 21st century problem. It's not an American problem. When Jesus showed up in the first century, this was a huge problem with the religious community in Israel at that time. And this is one of the issues, one of the big issues that Jesus was trying to confront. And what Jesus was, the people that Jesus was trying to confront, the ones that were kind of setting the tone for this kind of living, where where living in spiritual cognito was incentivized. And where being open about where you truly stood spiritually was suppressed, Jesus was trying to take on those people. The religious leaders at the time were incentivizing spiritual anonymity, and they were uh, suppressing people being open about where they truly stood with God. So Jesus shows up, and you probably know this, in Matthew 23, he calls the religious leaders whitewashed tombs. Or cups that have been cleaned and polished and look great on the outside but are nasty and full of filth on the inside. But you can't see it until you begin to drink the, from the cup. And those whitewashed tombs, he's saying you, you polish the outside of your life. But really what's in your heart and what's in your mind is just dead things, filth, decay. And he is telling this to the people that are supposed to be the most righteous people, the most godly people in their community. In Luke 18... He tells a parable, a story. We did a parable series this time last year. And he tells this story about this Pharisee and this tax collector. And they're two different prayers. And he compares their prayers. And he says that the tax collector who beats his chest and says, Be merciful upon me, a sinner. Because he knows where he stands with God. And he's asking for God's mercy compared to the Pharisee who says, God, I thank you so much that I'm not like this tax collector. He's saying Jesus is trying to address the issue that all of us are messed up, that all of us have stuff that we wish nobody would find out about. We all need God's grace. And what he's saying to these people that are kind of leading the charge in the religious community at that time is, y'all are pretending to be somebody that you're not. You're living in spiritual incognito. You're pretending like you don't have anything in your closet that you're afraid for people to find out. 
And that's the thing that we are still struggling with 2,000 years later in a Christian community in the Western Hemisphere. It's traveled. It's crazy how sin is universal, how it doesn't matter the time or the place. Wherever you go in this world, you're going to find sin, and you're going to find people that pretend they don't have it. The church should be a place where we know for a fact that we're sinners in need of God's grace. And we help each other grab a hold of that grace and be better followers of Jesus every single day. But we struggle so much, we give in to that temptation to put on a facade, especially when we gather with God's people. Isn't that crazy? That we know we're all sinners. We all, we all know we need God's grace. And when we gather together, we feel that temptation to pretend like we don't need God's grace, to pretend that we don't struggle with sin. The Jesus style of ministry, we're just going to look at one story in John chapter 1. In John chapter 1, uh, this is probably this is one of my favorite stories. I didn't find it. Uh, for some reason, I just overlooked it kind of my entire life till a few years ago. In this story, Jesus is calling his disciples. This is John chapter 1, very early in Jesus' ministry. He's calling his, these, are, these disciples would follow Jesus all the way to, to the cross. And they would, after Jesus was killed and then when he was resurrected, he, these guys were put in charge of taking the gospel, the good news that Jesus is alive and he's the Savior of the world. They were in charge of taking it to the world. In verse 45, Jesus calls us first disciples, and he, one of the guys he first calls is called Philip. In verse 45 of John chapter 1, it says, Philip went to look for Nathanael and told him, We have found the very person Moses and the prophets wrote about. His name is Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Verse 46, Nazareth, exclaimed Nathanael, can anything good come from Nazareth? I'm going to stop right there. I'm from a little town called Hazen. If Jesus was from Carlisle, this would probably be my response. From Carlisle? Can anything good come from Carlisle? And Peter or Philip replied, come and see for yourself. In verse 47, as they approached, Jesus said, Now here is a genuine son of Israel, a man of complete integrity. And Nathanael said, How do you know about me? Jesus replied, I could see you under the fig tree before Philip found you. Then Nathanael exclaimed, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. This is one of the few times when Jesus' first interaction with people, he's described exactly who he is. Because most people really wanted Jesus to be the Messiah that, he wanted, that they wanted him to be. But what Nathanael says here is he says, Rabbi, which means teacher. You are the Son of God, the King of Israel. What's crazy here is, is how Nathaniel, when he hears about Jesus, and just where Jesus is from, Nathaniel says, how could that place produce the Messiah, the Son of God, the King of Israel? How can that place? I've been there. It's kind of trashy. How can that place be where this guy's from? And Jesus shows up, and Jesus says, Now here is a genuine son of Israel. Not exactly sure what that means, but I assume that it made Nathaniel feel really good. A man of complete integrity. You see, the way that Nathaniel, when he first heard about Jesus, his reaction was, oh, Where he's from, oh, it can't be right. 
And Jesus hadn't even met Nathaniel. He says, I know you. I know that you are a genuine son of Israel. I know that you're a man of complete integrity. I know you. And Nathaniel says, well, how, how do you know me? How do you know about who I am? Nathaniel recognized the qualities that he hoped, probably hoped to have within himself. And Jesus tells him, you are this person. This is who you are. And Nathaniel says, how do you know? And, and Nathaniel, or Jesus says, Nathaniel, I saw you when you were underneath the fig tree. Jesus knew Nathaniel's character, his personality, and even his previous location. And Nathaniel realized, this person knows everything about me. And he responded in faith and referred to Jesus by his correct title as the Son of God, the Messiah, his rabbi, the King of Israel. Sometimes when we hear about Jesus, we look at things, we see things in the Bible, we see his people and what they do, and we say, man, I'm not so sure that Jesus could be the Son of God. But that doesn't change the fact that Jesus knows everything about you. Nathaniel, when he heard what Jesus had to say about, him, about himself, Nathaniel responded to that in faith and claimed that Jesus was the Son of God and had faith in that. Just based on the fact that Jesus knew who he was and what we see later in the story of the gospel is that not only did Jesus know who Nathaniel was, but he, he loved Nathaniel. His knowledge of Nathaniel was complete, and his love for Nathaniel was complete. It was perfect. It was full. If you're walking in here and you feel the temptation to put on a facade, know that we serve a God that sent his son. It was him and his very own person in the flesh, he became human. God became human to show exactly how much he knows you, that his knowledge of you is perfect. There's nothing that you can hide from him. King David refers to this in Psalm 39, and he says, 139, he says that I can't go anywhere that you can't find me. You knit me together in my mother's womb. You know exactly who I am. And Jesus shows up to tell people face to face as the Son of God, as God in the flesh, to say, I know you. You can't hide from me. You can't pretend to be some, something that you're not. You can't put on a facade that I can't see through. I know you. But Jesus also said, through his life and his death and the resurrection, I love you. To be known truly and to be loved truly is what all of us want, whether we want to admit it or not. We all want from our spouse to be known truly and to be loved truly. We all, by our closest friends, want to be known truly and to be loved truly. What you should want is for the people in this church to know you truly and to love you truly. That desire is in you because that's your relationship with God. Whether you accept that or not, it doesn't change the fact that God knows you fully and he loves you fully. Whatever you've done, wherever you've been, whatever you're doing, whoever you are, whatever you're going to do, whatever you're going to be, God knows that. 
and he still loves you. We feel shame, we have regrets, and yet God overlooks that and doesn't overlook it. Pardon me. He sees that, and he sent Jesus to die for that and to redeem you from that so that you can have a relationship with God and have full intimacy with him. This is how much you can know God, is that God will send his spirit to live within you. That's how much he loves you. That's how much he wants to know you. He wants to have that unity with you that's so close that his very presence resides within you. That's a powerful, powerful message. And yet, we all hide things. We all hide things because we're afraid of people's reaction to what we do in secret, what we really think, how we really feel. We're afraid of people's judgment. We're afraid of people's disgust. We may even be afraid of people's fear of us. Whatever we believe about people's reaction to who we truly are, we try to hold back and try to only share so much. What we know about Jesus is this, and we know this from from the Gospels, is that he knows the depth of our sin. He knows our thoughts, our motivations. He sees the things that no one else wants to see and the things that we hope no one else finds out, and he loves us anyway. And Paul wrote in Romans 5, 8, he says, While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The church should be a gathering of people who are known by God and known by each other. The church should be a gathering of people who are loved by God and are loved by each other. So I'm going to ask you this question. God truly knows you and he truly loves you. Does anyone else truly know you? Is anybody who calls himself a Christian, a follower of Jesus, that lives in the same place that you live, that you can see on a regular basis, does anyone that fits that description, does anybody like that truly know you? The church should be a gathering of these people that truly know each other and truly love each other. The band's going to come forward. You know, it's a powerful thing, uh, and we're going to respond. Whatever you feel like God is asking you to do this morning, uh, I'm going to challenge you with a couple of things, and hopefully you respond to that. But we all know it's a powerful thing for someone to know all the bad parts of who you are and to still love you anyway. My wife, um, she's not here today. She's home with sick kids, but uh, she, she's seen me at my worst, right? And uh, I wish she would see me more at my best, but that's, that is what it is. And she still truly loves me. But what I hope is, sorry, Sam, I hope that what, how I live my life and how I respond to you all is that she's not the only one that truly knows me and truly loves me. So at the very beginning, I said I had two different challenges for two different kinds of people. If you're a part of this church, I'm going to ask you, are you diving as deep as you know that you need to dive to truly know people here? Are you putting in the work that you know that you need to put in to truly know people here? And if you're doing that, are you allowing what you learn about people to keep you from truly loving them? That's the hard part, right? You can get to know somebody, then you learn something about him. Like, I don't know if I love that person as much as I should. I challenge you to dig deep into the spirit 
that lives within you, to love them the way that God loves you, to realize that God knows you completely. He knows all those bad things, and yet he still loves you. Dig deep to truly know people and to truly love people. If you're not a part of this church or if you're not a part of any church, I ask you, are you allowing people to know you? Are you opening yourself up enough so that people can see the struggles going on in your life? Are you giving into the temptation that we all have, that we all have, to put on a facade that everything's okay, we don't need to talk about anything, I'm good enough. I'm okay just showing up and marginally participating. Or are you opening up to people so they can truly know you and so they can help you, so that God can use them to get you back on the right path? Are you struggling to love people? It, it's, if you're not opening up to people, I'm, I guarantee you it's going to be hard for you to love other people as well. So those are the challenges. Whether you're part of this church or not, if you're part of another church or not, I challenge you to be truly known by God's people so you can open yourself up to be truly loved by God's people. And the church, I'm going to warn you right now, the church is going to fail. We're going to fail you sometimes. But that's the process for us to open ourselves up enough to give us the chance to love and to know each other the way that God knows and loves us and demonstrated to us through what Jesus did for us through his perfect life, his sinner's death, and his victory, victory over death and the empty grave. Thank you for listening. We encourage you to take some next steps this week. One, a good first next step is to attend a small group. There, you will find people who want to get to know you and help you grow closer to God. Two, if you need to confess sin or a struggle, first, confess to God, then to a trusted Christian friend. Ask for help from that friend to help you overcome what you're struggling with. For more information about small groups, Pathway Kids, or anything Pathway-related, contact us at pathwaybaptist.com connect.